Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today's Thursday, February 1st. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. No one is more the face of European tech regulation than Marguerite Vestager. For years, she's been behind the European Commission's antitrust cases against the likes of Meta, Google, and Apple. She's the guiding force behind the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, two major regulations targeting social media and digital advertising companies that take effect in the coming weeks. And her portfolio is poised to expand even further as the EU prepares to pass its first-ever artificial intelligence rules. It's a busier time than ever for Executive Vice President Vestager, and yet her tenure is almost up. Unless she's chosen for a third term, Vestager will leave the European Commission later this year, just as the most consequential tech laws are getting started. For the show today, I sat down with Vestager this week during her visit to Washington for a rather subdued meeting of the US-EU Trade and Technology Council. She delves into the EU's AI ambitions, her years-long crackdown on Silicon Valley, and why she's hoping to stay around a little bit longer. Welcome to the Politico Tech Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. I have a number of tech topics to to talk with you about because there there really is so much happening in this space. I'd like to start with the EU AI Act, um, which has gotten global attention. You know, it's a scenario where once again, the EU is leading the US as sort of a tech regulator. What seems different to me this time is AI is an emerging space, and Europe is also looking to be a real innovator here as well. I wonder what your response is to skeptics who say you can't be both. Well, in in my experience, you can. For me, it's not just uh, theory. I have seen so many times that with uh, good regulation, enable people to trust uh, technology, and because of that, uh, it's much more useful for them. And if you take artificial intelligence, which, you know, was a thing long before the large models, you had issues in public administration. And the risk is, of course, that public sector would scare away from using artificial intelligence if not regulated. In Europe, we have huge public sectors. We need that as part of the demand uh, for AI uh, to make that public sector demand part of the assets for the development of artificial uh, intelligence solutions. So if a mayor, a minister, a government would say, no, no, this is too risky. I don't want to be accused of discriminating my citizens. You would not have that approach. So for us, it has been an integrated part of our work from the very first day to enable innovation while at the same time have, you know, modern uh, focused uh, regulation on the risky use cases, not on the general use of AI, but on the use cases where something essential uh, is at stake. I've heard you say that the the EU wants to develop its own AI Mm -hmm. industry, not be dependent necessarily on U.S. tech companies like Microsoft and Google. Uh, Is that industry already forming on its own or are there going to, is there going to need to be some incentive in place to really build out a European AI industry? 
Well, for, for me, it's not for Europe to be uh, self-sufficient in artificial intelligence. Uh, Europe is open for business uh, okay. from, from everywhere. But I think it's important that you have choice. And the choice should not be American or American. Mm. Uh, it should be uh, this artificial intelligence model serves my purpose. Uh, and you see a number of emerging uh, EU companies uh, also in the AI field. But as, as very often, you see it embedded in, in what is a European uh, DNA, a European culture, which is very to be very industrial. So you okay. see it in, in medical equipment, uh, in machinery. Uh, so a slightly different approach uh, than what you would see in the U.S. Which is, would you say, more consumer-oriented or more social-oriented? How would you differentiate kind of the U.S. from the, the EU in that way? Mm, well, you know, the first uh, chapter of digitization uh, was very much sort of won by those who were uh, directly consumer-oriented. Uh, Europe did not deliver a sufficiently uh, uh, deep uh, digital single market, uh, not sufficient access to risk-willing capital, uh, for businesses to scale uh, in Europe. Um, we learned from that. And, and now when we're starting a new chapter of digitization, I think you'd see that your European market is much better. Uh, more capital is available. And there is a different sense of we want to be part of this uh, with a European approach than what you saw um, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Well, the, the U.S., as you know, is in its own sort of legislative process around artificial intelligence. What do you hear from your American counterparts about the EU AI Act and the expected impact it's going to have? One of the things of, of uh, the Trade and Technology Council was that we agreed on the approach to AI very early on. Mm -hmm. I think it was a discussion we had at the very first meeting uh, to say, well, the approach to AI should be on the use cases where there is a risk uh, to something that we find fundamental. For instance, you should not be discriminated when applying for a mortgage or to be accepted to university. Um, so we have different uh, uh, legislative systems, but we have had an aligned approach from the very first day. So uh, the fact that we could uh, produce, table, uh, negotiates uh, and hopefully in the coming uh, week pass um, uh, legislation. Uh, I think is very much respected here as as this is the thing we can do in Europe. Here uh, in the U.S., uh, they have the uh, presidential executive order, right. which I think is very much aligned with the AI Act. And then we all have, and we work very hard to establish this, uh, the G7 uh, Code of Conduct. You mentioned the um, presidential order on, on AI, and I wonder how sort of comparable you see that uh, with what the European Union has passed. You know, for, um, I had a conversation earlier this week for this podcast with former U.S. Congressman Will Hurd. His estimate was that the U.S. is somewhere between 18 to 24 months behind the EU on, on AI regulation. I wonder if you think the U.S. is moving too slowly here or, or not. I don't think I'm I'm well placed to to grade uh, other other uh, democratic systems. It would be a good thing if uh, if also the U.S. Uh, passed legislation. The best thing, though, is that we're aligned uh, in what we do, because first it makes it much easier for for businesses uh, to comply. That's the the 
the approach is the same. And, uh, and it also enlarges the marketplace uh, for AI, uh, both uh, as such, but also for products where uh, AI is embedded. So I think no matter the form of your uh, approach, uh, it's important that businesses realize that there is a very strong, very broad political will to make sure that we get this right. If I could challenge you on that just a bit, mm-hmm. because if you if you look at privacy, for instance, right, this, that's a topic where I've heard many times you know, there there's alignment in terms of values between the U.S. and the, the EU over privacy. But because of differences in laws and differences in, in legal protections around privacy, it's sort of been a constant challenge for businesses and just citizens, right? Is AI going to be subject to a similar fate of you know, we have the same values, but but different laws, and therefore that creates problems. I agree with you that it's a risk, but I don't think so because the dynamics of the two processes will be very different. In Europe, the privacy laws came as a reaction to what has been building up over the years of, of data massively being, being captured by big tech, uh, with people having little or, or no influence uh, and no control. So it was a reaction to a very long development, a reaction that has inspired globally for a number of, of jurisdictions to make not the same, but similar pieces of legislation. You saw India pass privacy legislation uh, quite recently. Right. You have a number of states of the United States who have also passed privacy legislation. But this was a reaction to a long development Here, um, actually, we agreed on the approach to AI before the large models was even launched. And I think that sort of strengthened the probability that also when things are set, first in in codes of practice, best practices, legal provisions, the chances that we will be aligned, they are much, much bigger. I see. Well, I want to ask you another area where AI intersects with your portfolio is competition. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know you're currently evaluating whether Microsoft's you know thirteen billion dollar investment in into OpenAI should be subject to to review under EU antitrust regulation. It seems like a lot of the world's antitrust regulators right now, including here in the U.S. with the Federal Trade Commission, are sort of turning a, a critical eye to to the AI sector. How closely are you coordinating with? your American counterparts in that space? Well, here we, we will all have to, to learn uh, and we need to learn fast. Uh, so better learn together. Right. Okay. We have uh, sort of there is a sibling uh, to the Trade Technology Council, which is a dialogue between competition authorities. So once a year, my senior management and myself, we travel here or they travel to us, the senior management and, and Jonathan Kander and, and Lena Khan of the FTC. Uh, and then we discuss uh, issues of, of general interest. And, and AI and competition is, is definitely uh, one of those areas. So to some degree, you know, taking the inspiration, trying to inform our work so that we get it right. And now we... Uh, have sort of an explorative uh, consultation as to how AI will affect market dynamics. Because we saw how market dynamics were affected by network effects, by by data becoming such an essential Mm -hmm. uh, driver 
uh, of, uh, of competition. It took some time before that established itself, but it completely changed market dynamics. Now with AI, it is likely that we will see a change in market dynamics as well. And it's likely that it will happen much faster than what we saw of network effects and, and the data-driven marketplace. And I think compared to previous time, that was fast. So what we expect now is quite fast. Right. Turbocharged everything, really, exactly. AI will. Um, I mean, have you found consensus with Lena Khan and, and uh, Cantor in terms of how you think about the market disruption of AI and, and how you should approach it from an antitrust lens? Well, it's uh, it's still uh, quite early days. We're, as I said, we're, we're asking market participants uh, because we don't want this to be sort of an ivory tower thinking uh, kind of thing. So we have no conclusions yet. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. Pivoting to, if I may, the Digital Services Act, the commission has opened proceedings against X, formerly known as Twitter, over concerns about hate speech and other harmful content. Is that sort of an opening shot, if you will, for other tech platforms when it comes to complying with this law and, and taking it seriously? Well, we, we obviously open only open investigations if we think that there are grounds for it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that an open investigation is the same that you will be found guilty in having done something illegal. Of course. But you cannot open an investigation if you do not have, you know, a sufficient amount of evidence at least to say, well, I have doubts as to whether or not you're doing something illegal or not. Because it's a, uh, it's obviously a burden on, on a company if authorities lean in on you and say, we think that you might have done something illegal. And I think it's a good example uh, for X. First, uh, we had a, a period of time where we observed uh, what was ongoing. And for us, it was clear that, is, that we had the suspicion that X does not have the necessary monitoring and, and moderating systems as you are supposed to have due to the Digital Services Act. I don't know when we will be done with, with our investigation, but of course, you can take it as a token of the fact that we are uh, willing and able to open investigations also under the Digital Markets Act. If we see on Compliance Day, 7th of March, that there is suspicion that there is non-compliance. And, and from what I know, because, you know, I've been responsible for many tech cases, not one, not two, not three finalized Google cases. We now have a fourth one on advertising uh, to your point. We have two Apple cases. We have a Facebook case. We have uh, cloud cases that we're discussing with, with Microsoft. So based on my experience, I think it's really important to tell gatekeepers we are on it. Uh, we will do non-compliant cases if you do not comply. You've been at this a long time talking with these companies. Have you seen a change in how they respond to, to you and to the EU sort of regulatory regime, you know, as has resistance softened and kind of acceptance uh, become more of the norm? Actually, I, I don't think that it's only us. I, I think that globally, the approach to big tech has changed. 
Sure. Uh, also here in the U.S., uh, when I, I started traveling to the U.S., I think 70% of Americans, they found that these were, you know, American sweetheart uh, companies. They could do nothing wrong. That has changed a lot as to where we are today. Right. Uh, same goes, you know, we had uh, the very um, uh, public um, back and forth in Australia uh, about news and um, Facebook closing off. Uh, we've had uh, the role of Facebook in, in some uh, Asian countries, um, uh, in my opinion, a very negative role. Uh, so I think it's it's a global thing that has sort of moved in on big tech to say, well, actually, there are limits as to what we find uh, to be a good corporate citizen also when you're big tech. The U.S. and EU are in the midst of consequential elections right now, of course. And in the U.S., that's that's shaping up to be this rematch between former President Trump and President Biden. I'd be curious for your assessment of how much of an impact that outcome will have on the transatlantic relationship. Especially, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration necessarily to say that the Trump presidency put quite a bit of strain on that relationship. I, I think it goes for, for every relationship that the quality of it depends on the parties that goes into it. And we have, I think, built a stronger relationship uh, over these years. We have also put more uh, substance uh, into it. I, I myself, I've been in many events where you were cheering the transatlantic relationship, but one was like, mm, yeah, but what is it? Mm -hmm. How did it materialize? Uh, now we, we know that it can materialize in an approach to artificial intelligence and how we deal with semiconductors, how we work together in standardization, et cetera, et cetera. If there is a change in the approach uh, to the transatlantic relationship and, and to what we do in Europe, of course, it will influence what we can do. But from other side, our side, definitely, of course, we want to continue strengthening it and, and building on it. The geopolitics of the world that we live in is such that uh, the closer you are together with people with whom you share values, the more can you actually do, the more efficient uh, can you be. So, um, of course, uh, whomever uh, wins the election, uh, we will be there and ready to, to work with them. Uh, because we think it's, it's very valuable to have this relationship, especially when we can deliver uh, concrete outcomes. Then my last question is just for, for you yourself, because I, I know you're in the final year of your mm -hmm. current uh, term with the commission. But I, I did read that you're open to a third term. Um, would you want to stay in your, your role for another five-year term? Well, there's been a bit back and forth in, in, uh, in, in, in Denmark, where I'm from. The first was was set with uh, with a smile, uh, because one of the things I'm I'm really uh, intensely focusing on is implementation of legislation. Uh, when you pass legislation, you change perception. When you implement it, you change behavior, mm. and that is so much more difficult. So it's a good test on people if they stay on, also to see the implementation of the legislation they have been responsible for for passing. And then I jumped from that to say, well, give me another mandate. Uh, but that was said uh, with a smile because it's, it's obviously for the Danish government uh, to decide. Uh, but I think it would be 
I think it would be cha- strange if I didn't say what is the the uh, the truth of it uh, that I find it to be a huge privilege uh, to be allowed to work in the commission and uh, and I really really like this job. Well, Commissioner, thank you for joining us on Politico Tech. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese. Our producer is Afra Abdullah. And our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow 